Welcome to the Trash Cats Trash Cast. I'm Richard. I'm Steven. And today we're making a verbal contract that in the event of our untimely demise, we wish to be stuffed. Pump me full of cotton, put a beer in my hand, and use me like a coat rack. Today we're talking about taxidermy. Oh shit, I'm excited to talk about dead shit. Yep, man. It's uh, it's kind of what we're what we uh, were born to do. Yeah. How was your week? Uh, week's been good. Um, it's been very uneventful uh, again, which is uh, not a bad thing in my book. Yeah. Um, I've been uh, slowly getting my um, my studio here put together in a way that I like and the way that I've been envisioning it. Uh, it still needs a little bit of touch up work, but I'm done sticking money in it for now. Dude, it lo- it turned out so great. Professional level studio. The astro lights and shit. The space vibe. So fucking dope. Very cool. And um, now I got to figure out a way to utilize it in a way that makes sense to invest, to have invested this much time in it. I guess it's just, if it's just for me, it's still fine. Yeah, it's true. Um, Sacred space. Or at least I need a, uh, I need a PC that matches it. It's not just this old fucking (laughs) laptop that whines way too loud <laughs> you're getting there though so. yeah how's your week been um okay um busy um have not been able to finish publish any art but i got some cool stuff in the works something that's taking me way too fucking long for something so simple but i like mm-hmm. it um aside from that it's just been kind of chill um better than last week so i can't complain yeah, that's always good. Yeah. Honorable uh, mentions? I got nothing. All right, I got a couple, and I was excited to show you these. So this first one, I was talking to an artist we featured previously, um, Plastic Cats. Yeah. I was talking to Plastic Cats on Instagram. They had left a comment on one of my pieces, and they said something to the effect of, like, you do the best clouds out of anyone. Like, I love your cloud work. And I was like, oh, fuck yeah, man. Like, that's such a cool compliment. I work with cloud stuff a lot. It's a very sweet compliment. And then I was thinking of, like, other artists I like or I think do it better. And this particular artist came to mind. And I'm probably not going to say the the name right because they are an Instagram digital artist. (laughs) The name of this artist is Die7Eyed on Instagram. The at is... D-I, the number seven, I-D-E. And this artist does uh, digital design, uh, collage, graphic design kind of stuff, similar to uh, some of the stuff I do, but their focus is solely on clouds, moons, and skies. Now, I'm going to take a a different uh, take on that because I think it's supposed to be read divide. I don't know. I, it's like I, lead speak with the with the seven as a. I I couldn't. A de- I thought maybe uh, die seven eyed if it was like a reference to a chemical compound. Mm, maybe. I could see it going either way, right? Yeah. So you went with divide. Yeah, that's that's just the way that I it's saw a, it and read it. It's a but stretch, I, but it might be right. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> if you look at the seven, like it's a, uh, you know, like it's a. a fuck am i trying to say like I a no triangle idea. with a drop shadow on it that's the way i see sure. it upside down triangle with a little drop shadow that's the seven so this this artist <laughs> it's very um ethereal very glowy 
it's like little snapshots of like alien skies and there's lots honestly there's a ton of artists including myself that does similar stuff or incorporates aspects of this but this person like really i think specializes in it in a unique way like they feel so simple but they capture so much at the same time and they just feel really satisfying and calming to look at yeah the the color usage is just wild it's very it goes from very like serene and calming to like some other pieces are more like you can feel like it's almost overwhelmingly like um saturated well i was gonna say like the the emotion i get from it is like it's very um i don't know like um what's the word when when you feel like something bad's gonna happen ominous ominous yes ominous is the right word that's interesting I can see like, that. I get that from some of the pieces. And it's like, it's not, not in a bad way at all. Like, it's a very beautiful way to get it. Um, one of the pieces that you shared with me um, is called uh, Drift Apart. Um, I like that one. It reminds me a lot of an old um, Black Sabbath cover, which. The I'm, colors. Yeah, this is the strong colors. And it also reminds me of the um, the intro to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The yeah. like the OG one has like some color vibes like that in the the title, yeah. Uh, intro like kind of retro psychedelic, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I it kind of reminds me of the the trash wave music in a bit where like instead of the controlled um, redlining, what the, what is it called in audio? We've said it so many times. Uh, the crunching of audio. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Instead of uh, that with music, they he, this artist kind of like over punches or saturate colors, so it goes from these like smooth fields of like subtle color to like blown out color at times, and I think it, in a controlled, purposeful way that I, I find very interesting. Yeah, it it makes it look extremely like I feel like that can be done and it would look sometimes amateurish. Yes. But these look really fantastic. Yeah. That's I really said purposeful is the the main takeaway there. Yeah, like time is put into these. I, I really can think of like at least twenty other artists I've seen that solely do this kind of work and it's really bad or just like not good enough to be like meaningful i feel like most of these are are pretty enough that they feel meaningful yeah i also like their use of the the moon yeah and so many of the pieces they're like when they have like the the moon imposed like multiple times yeah honestly i used to do more like this and for me personally i just didn't quite want to get pigeonholed because there is a repetitive nature where each piece is done differently but it's normally a couple clouds and a moon and that's great for this person's specialty but it is tricky to like try to constantly come up with something new with the same subject matter yeah but this person's doing it so Cool shit. A dreamlike state. Uh, die seven-eyed or divide on Instagram. We'll have links and photos. Second artist. 
All right, this is the person when we featured uh, Lauren Max, her work, like an episode or two ago. Mm-hmm. I was trying to find this artist and I couldn't find them. So I finally found this artist again. This is someone I've talked to on the internet over the years a little bit. Um, this artist's name is uh, 30 Seconds of Starless. Um, it's at, at uh, the numbers 30, 30 seconds of Starless, all one word, on Instagram. Um, do, what do you think of the, the two? The two you sent me? Yeah, and they both can click over. One's a still photos of paintings, and then the second is a video. Um, they are... They, I love the, the color usage. Um, it reminds me of... The, the still images reminds me of um, like anime cover, like manga covers. Definitely inspired by. Um, the but the other like one with native. the video and like the, the some of the the sculpture ish kind of stuff on his page is it's really beautiful, really cool shit that like it, it's almost like especially the one that you sent me the the rust spirit. Reminds me of like post-apocalyptic kind of a, a vibe where it's like both very natural and still somewhat unnatural of, of you know, it's like a man-made feeling, but it's got like a, that, uh, I, I don't even know what that is. It looks like a, like a grass or like a, something around the collar. It's very cool though. Yeah, I feel like the aesthetic is almost like a modern Native American anime style mm, yeah. for, for the character paintings. And they're like different creatures or beings with different types of masks and everything's like formatted in a graphic design illustrative style, but hand painted. And then this artist also specializes in like hand molding and painting these sculptures of the characters, uh, making these like modeled scenes and then costume work with it. And like some of the, the costume work is like fully crafted, like suits of armor with masks and like the leather jackets might have like spikes and things. And then it still has that like anime, post-apocalyptic level like they'll have like the D stats written on the jackets and stuff like different like weird nods to things that are like just really cool you know you know what's funny is like in, until you you said the uh, native american um i i started scrolling through the page and i was like oh that's that aesthetic that i can't put i couldn't put my finger on I feel that. But it's very much, now that you said it, it's like, oh, duh, that's so prominent. Because it's his own spin. Like, it's his own original take on all of it. Yeah, absolutely. But, like, now that you you mention it, it's like, absolutely, it's there. It's very obvious that that's taken, you know, from, you know, things, things, other things that I've seen, but it's just like you said, in in so much of his own style and he's taken, you know, his run with it that it's really beautiful. Yeah, all this different play and like uh, symbology, different symbols and um, just really cool stuff. Just really cool aesthetic. He has a, he's one of those artists where like, 
even if you didn't like his work, it is all very clearly his. Very strong, dialed-in aesthetic, where, like, regardless of what medium he was playing with, you would likely be able to tell it was his. Um, which is something I just appreciate very much. I love seeing what he's going to do next, so it's a pleasure to share uh, the art of 30 Seconds of Starless. We'll have links and photos on the pages. It looks like he makes pins. I don't know if he sells them. I don't know if there's anything he doesn't make, honestly. I've seen yeah. so many different yeah, he's got a he's lot of wild the shit. The costume design stuff, thats that takes so much. It's a totally different mindset than... It's pretty next level. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, wild I, shit. I thought it... He kind of has that, like, spilled bleach vibe. Like, old uh, leather, rusted tin, spilled bleach, living in a post-apocalyptic uh, anime... Uh, with Indian vibes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it's this very niche. There's a whole lot of shit going on there. I dig it. That's so cool. So pleasure to share. Um, and I think that's it. Taxidermy, yeah. Taxidermy. <laughs> so taxidermy is the art of preserving an animal's body for the purpose of display or study. Animals are often, but not always, portrayed in a lifelike state. The word taxidermy describes the process of preserving the animal. But the word is also used to describe the end product, which are called taxidermy mounts or simply referred to as taxidermy. The word taxidermy is derived from the Greek word taxis and derma. Uh, taxis means arrangement and derma means skin. So the word taxidermy translates to arrangement of skin. Fuck yeah, we're moving around some skin today. Yeah. <laughs> Taxiderm my corpse. <laughs> Taxidermy is practiced primarily on vertebrates, but can also be done to larger insects and arachnids. Taxidermy takes on a number of forms and purposes, including hunting trophies and natural history museum displays. Museums use taxidermy as a method to record species, including those that are extinct and threatened, in the form of study skins and life-size mounts. Taxidermy is sometimes also often used as a means to memorialize pets. It is a different craft, but I've always particularly liked the insect and butterfly displays. Yeah, those are really cool. It's and the, like when they put all the pins in the wings or around the beetles and stuff, it creates this like weird second exoskeleton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's they're so pretty. Um it was that was a part of the uh the Cincinnati Zoo that I never appreciated until I got older. Um and the most recent time I went there and went to the insect house and you go through and they have all of these different displays of all of these wild ass bugs and you're like it's just some of them are so like devilish looking or so like colorful and bright and beautiful and you're like what like where the fuck do these come from? Yeah. Like how did how did evolution create these wild ass things? I mean, I guess some of it you see like, you know, it's for like um what's it called? Um camouflage or whatever. But then I know there's certain certain insects that are like they look that way because other animals that see like certain UV light or whatever, they can't see a certain spectrum of light. They wouldn't see them and, you know, on a flower and they wouldn't like 
be taken as prey and like just the wild shit that they go through to, to, to get to that point. Yeah. And it's for survival. It's not even like to look beautiful. It's just survival. Yeah. That recently new doc on Netflix about the, the color spectrums of animals was very intriguing. And, but it, it is also weird. Like, I don't know. It's so cool to see all the bugs laid out that way, but it is pretty weird to have like trophies of all the beautiful things you have killed. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That is weird. Yeah. Even zoos in general, you're just visiting the animal prisons. Like we're yeah. not supposed to see tigers in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah. There's no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let them free. Right. Open the cages. Uh, a person who practices taxidermy is also is called a taxidermist. Uh, they may practice professionally, catering to museums, hunters, and fishermen, or as amateur hobbyists. A taxidermist is aided by familiarity with uh, anatomy, sculpture, painting, and tanning. It's a lot of different types of art all mixed together. Yeah, there's like you know, there's like a lot of biology you have to know, and like the anatomy, and and understanding the you know the craft of of you know taking them apart and then putting them back together in an artistic way. Yeah, and if you if you're lacking in any of those disciplines, the final product is not going to come together. Right. Perfectly. It's kind of like a mix between like the art of sculpture and body modification, but you're practicing it on a dead animal to preserve it in a specifically desired aesthetic state. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. Um, preserving animal skins has been practiced for a long time. Um, embalmed animals have been found in Egyptian, found with Egyptian mummies. Uh, although embalming incorporates the use of lifelike poses, it's not considered taxidermy. God, it, it's so fucking cool how they would mummify their cats. It like in hopes to go to the afterlife together. It's yeah. so fucking awesome. I hope. I hope we get to go to the afterlife with all of our dead cats, too. Cause yeah, that, yeah make, that would be ideal. <laughs> that makes it sound way cooler. And then uh, a quick sidebar on mummification, because this is like my favorite shit ever as a kid, is the, the brain removal. Oh, you, yeah. Do you, that was like the one exciting moment in class when you- You're like, like it, they do fucking what? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> so the brain was removed through the nostrils with a hook and thrown away because it is not believed to be important, which is so funny. <laughs> yeah, I fucking love that. They're like, this is useless. This is stupid. Fuck your <laughs> Get, brain. Yeah. What the fuck is all this trash up here for? <laughs> <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the with this body. Right. <laughs> uh, so this process called excerebration. Ex um, I think I'm saying that right. Excerebration is the ancient mummification procedure of removal of the brain from corpses prior to the actual embalming. Yeah, and some people, I think it is commonly thought to be like an iron stick with a hook, but I've often heard it's something organic also. So an object more than six to eight inches long, um, likely made from plants such as palm. Palm? palm. Uh, and bamboo would have been used to for liquefying and removing the brain. Stick it in, stir it up like a Capri Sun. <laughs> the instrument would be inserted through a hole punched through the ethmoid bone near the nose via a chisel. Some parts of the brain would be wrapped around this hook, stuck, and pulled out. The other parts would be liquefied. 
In order to drain the remaining liquefied brain and cerebral fluid, the individual would be put on their abdomen or their head would be lifted. Let it all leak out. I got to tell you, that's that's one of the few things that like when I hear it, it, when I even like reading this and putting this together made me like – like feel like I was going to pass out. I don't like – like that one is one – the first time I ever experienced it was when we had somebody come in. It was like a professional doctor or some shit came to our school and was telling us about um, how they clear out arteries. Yeah. And they were talking about how they stick a fucking – you know, uh, um, like, like a brush through your, your, you know, arteries and shit. And it's like, oh, I can't like just imagining the bristles on the inside of my veins. And it's like, oh, I that fucking that. I hate that. I hate that so much. See, I think I would love it. I did see a photo today at work that honestly, it made me do a double take. Like I, I about like wanted to cry. It was a bad one of some gangrene from frostbite. Ooh. I was like, "Oh Ooh. fuck! Like, how are you still alive?" You get pictures with the with the. Sometimes I get to, I get to see some wild fucking shit throughout the day, though. Oh Jesus! It's pretty pretty cool, honestly. <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> I was one of my favorite. I used to like write. I had this journal of like torture methods <laughs> that I would like write to get you did. through school, right? One of one of the ones I always thought would be so fucking wild to try out would be injecting someone with ground glass. Oh. Like a fine dusty powder. Oh. Wouldn't mm. that tear them up from the inside, right? Oh, that sounds just the mo- the most terrible. Dude, I got some creative ones. One, one of these days, we'll do a whole podcast on it. That sounds bad. I, I still think scaphicism is my my least favorite. What was it? Scaphicism. Remind me. That's the one where they would... Um, there's a various different accounts of the details involved with it. Um, but the idea was basically they would force feed you uh, milk and honey. Oh, yeah. And then put you in a boat... That had like a, it was like a canoe that also had a top to it, and the other would like you would be cut like a bunch of little slits all over you. Um, and that they would also uh rub with like honey. Um, and then they would like kind of put, I think they would put you like in a bog or something where um insects would come and feed on you and um would eventually like slowly eat you from the inside out and they would continue to force feed you so you didn't die of starvation you would just you would be like you would shit on on, and piss all over yourself and that would bring more bugs and that would be like a a terrible infectious death Uh, hey at least you get to die among friends that way they're like sometimes it could take like weeks can I tell one of my more creative ones? Yeah, man. Let's do it. Honestly, this is one I'm I'm honestly pretty proud of. So the goal, <laughs> the goal with this You're fucking sick fuck <laughs> is to break the person psychologically. I don't mm-hmm. care if they die, right? You just want to break their mind. And there's yeah. no worse way than having to face yourself in a mirror forever, right? So the idea, it would be a purgatory. Imagine a giant track, like a, a, a field and track, yeah. like a quarter mile, 400 meter, right? Imagine that underground in a tunnel. So like 
it's a big enough loop that you can't see the end, right? Okay. Now imagine if you made that way bigger and the whole thing was coated with mirrors, right? Mm-hmm. And like you have it so like every hundred meters is like a mirror door. And the curve is so wide that you can't quite see around it. So you're just, it feels like you're walking through a straight tunnel of mirrors forever. And you just fill it with broken, like, it's just a mirror tunnel that you're walking through forever, covered in broken mirror glass. And you have to look at yourself wandering through mirrors forever. That sounds really shitty. And you could, like, clean up the blood on the next section behind them as they go forward. And no so matter they don't realize that they've been there. Yeah, and they're just stuck in a tunnel of mirrors looking at themselves forever. Yeah, that sounds terrible. I'm proud of that one. <laughs> yeah. Like, their, their only way out is, I mean, at least there's broken glass there. They can take their own life. Exactly. They have the choice at any time. Yeah, you, you gave them a choice. You're so kind. There's always a way out. <laughs> so back to mummification. <laughs> after after they've dumped all of the uh, the the broken brain juices out of the 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 head, uh, the internal organs were then removed through a cut in the left side of the body. The lungs, liver, stomach, and intestines were mummified separately and placed in special containers called canopic jars. Ah, oh, those jars are so cool. Yeah. That's some Jesus shit on the left side of the body, right? Um, That's where he took the spear. I don't think it had to do with Jesus because well, the yeah, ancient yeah. Yeah, Egyptians yeah. were further back in time than Jesus. But Jesus copied them, though. Jesus. <laughs> he copied them when he got cut on the side of his He got stabbed. What if they found Jesus' organs in a jar like that? All these years later. Oh, if Jesus was mummified? That would be cool, too. If Jesus was Egyptian, they, re- rewrite the history books. You know the shroud? Uh, I forget the name of the shroud. It's the one that the woman let him wipe his face during the crucifixion. Oh, he, yeah, yeah. They found that, and then for like 50... Did they, though? They, Did for, they find that one? For 50 years, it was believed to be real, and then it was proven it wasn't. Like, yeah. recently-ish. Um, but in the Middle Ages, crude examples of taxidermy were displayed by astrologers and apothecaries. Their earliest method of preservation of birds for natural history cabinets were published around 1748. There were several pioneers of taxidermy in France, Germany, Denmark, and England around this time. For a while, clay was used to shape some of the soft parts, but this also made the specimens especially heavy. In France, Louis Dufresne, a taxidermist at the National uh, National Natural History Museum in 1793, popularized arsenical soap. Mm. This technique enabled the museum to build the greatest collection of birds in the world. He was – I mean they were using um, – no, I, he might, I think he was actually the first one to actually start using arsenic. Because before that, weren't they using mercury sometimes? Oh, I don't remember that part. I don't remember. I think they might have moved on from that one already. Previously. Yeah. It's crazy how late people use mercury, though. Yeah. Louis Dufresne's methods spread to England in the early 19th century. 
they were updated and non-toxic methods of preservation were developed by some of the leading naturalists of the day. However, the art of taxidermy remained relatively undeveloped, and the specimens that were that were created remained stiff and unconvincing. By the 19th century, almost every town in England, England had a tannery business. Hunters began bringing their trophies to upholstery shops, where the upholsterers would actually sew up the animal skins and stuff them with rags and cotton. The term stuffing, or a stuffed animal, evolved from this crude form of taxidermy. Professional taxidermists preferred the term mounting to stuffing. More sophisticated cotton-wrapped wire bodies supporting sewn-on uh, cured skins soon followed. See, that to me makes a lot of sense because at the time, like, you didn't even have cameras. Like, if you wanted to show someone, like, a, a prized kill or a new species you found or just, like, I don't know, be proud of your, your hunting prowess or whatever, like, this was the only way to share, right? Yeah. It takes on a different light today. Yeah, exactly. The, the golden age of taxidermy was during the Victorian era when mounted animals became a popular part of interior design and decor. English orth- orthonist? Orth- ornithologist? Ornitho- is that? That's birds. Birds, yeah. English ornithologist John Hancock is considered to be the father of, father of modern taxidermy. An avid collector of birds, which he would shoot himself, he began modeling them with clay and casting in plaster. For the Great Exhibition of 1851 in London, he mounted a series of stuffed birds as an exhibit. They generated interest among the public and scientists alike, who considered them superior to the earlier models and were regarded as the first lifelike and artistic specimens on display. Hancock's display sparked great national interest in taxidermy, and amateur and professional collections for public view proliferated quickly. Displays of birds were particularly common in middle-class Victorian homes. Even Queen Victoria amassed an impressive bird collection. Um, taxidermists were also increasingly used by bereaved owners of dead pets to, quote-unquote, resurrect them. That's cool. Man, what a what a privilege. Even I mean, even today, yeah. but at the time, to be able to... Like collect all those rare species like that. What a showing of wealth and power, right? Right, especially in that time when it was like there. I mean, it's like the the world had been, you know, explored at that point. But like to to be able to bring it back home with you and and keep it on display, kind of thing. That that's that was huge, especially from like wild and exotic foreign countries. Yeah, to bring back animals people have never seen. Yeah. But uh speaking of the the idea of resurrecting the dead pets. So I just watched like a little video. It might have been Vice that recently came out on the idea of digital resurrections and graveyards. So this is kind of unrelated, but the video was about what happens to our data after we die. Like yeah. the, the rights of your digital data after you you or a loved one passes. Like um, Twitter and Facebook ran into this problem where they, they have something like 130 million dead pro like user profiles. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to clear up all this space and like save money on these costs. And then there was um, 
like a pushback from people because their, you know, dead loved ones' pages would be gone and they wouldn't get that like yearly birthday reminder, get it like visit their page kind of thing. Yeah. So it turned into this idea, like there's a couple companies that do it now where they do like the idea is kind of like the those old websites where you would uh pay your respects on someone who's passed, but it would be like custom websites or gravestones that have like all of a person's digital like profiles or like their story in a one digital like place. Like you yeah. can go to the digital graveyard and experience that person. And then there was also uh, a coder and there's a couple other people working on it doing AI systems of uh, a dead person. So like you could take all your text, email, Facebook statuses of a loved one who's passed and like pay to have it analyzed by AI and be given an AI program of your loved one to to talk to. Yeah. And then they were, they were asking questions on like how that would affect the healing and coping process. And like, if it would be like, like how would it would affect how you grieve if you would have the chance to speak to a fake version of your dead loved one at any time? Yeah, I can see that being problematic. Yeah, in weird Very ways. Very easily see that being an issue. Um, I So after my um, grandpa died, his Facebook page became a, um, you know, like we, we got in and we set it up, you know, that – it was like became like a, a memorial in memorial to kind yeah. of thing. And um, it was helpful to have that there because there would be like holidays or whatever that would go by. And it was therapeutic to leave a thing there and like, hey, just thinking about you kind of thing. But I also did that a lot in my own head of um, talking to him. And like it would be like literally talking out loud as if he were there. Um, that I did a lot of, and th- I feel like that helped me grieve, um, because, you know, it, it, despite not getting, you know, um, you know, responses, I feel like it helped me a lot because it put me in the, I don't know, I guess it, it put me in the mindset of like getting the things off of my chest that I wanted to. It's like I didn't need a response. I just needed to feel like I was being heard or it's not, you know, I don't know. But having having that response, I feel like that's different. Having the a, a digital version of even if the dig, digital version of them there, I can feel like that would be that would slow progress. I feel like the digital space itself yeah, is, have, is having a, a space there is fine. Having a, a thing where you an feel AI like is an AI, yeah, that's weird. Or like it, it would have to have like limited time caps. Like maybe on that first week of someone's dead, I could see how like having limited time access to a fake version of them could help like the the coping process of someone who's really struggling or like once a year like after that. But like, it's almost like a, a a benzo, a digital benzo. Like sometimes something short acting uh, can help a like psychotic period, but long term it would make it so much worse because you would like need this fake 
like substitute. Yeah, it's interesting though. I, I, I definitely with with someone I love very much. That for me, I think one of the the cruelest things you can do is not give someone a gravestone or place to visit, even if they're um, uh, thrown in the furnace. Yeah, <laughs> what the fuck's it called? Uh, Cremated. Yeah, I feel like you still should have a a place to go visit someone. For me, my so my um my grandparents are both cremated and they the the thing um I don't think we got them a placeholder thing, but I did get one of those like a necklace that has the ashes in it. Mm-hmm. Um and for me like that's that's that. Like plus I, I also have like some of his like his old rings and like some of his like old clothing and stuff. Um, that all that fit me as well, and like stuff like that works for me. Yeah, you get to bring that place with you. Yeah, I, it's just hard. I think, especially like uh, out of financial reasons, I think more and more, like particularly young people, you know, like so many people lost parents or whatever. We have so many fucking orphans from the last couple years of COVID. Like having no. No physical, rem- like nothing and no place to go to remember a loved one is something like particularly cruel. Yeah. It's, it's so fucking expensive. Yeah. It's a, to me, that is a garbage business that has no value in the public sector. Like that is something we should do for each other, not uh, create for profit business. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, yeah. Uh, even uh, uh, recently, a friend of mine's um, their cat died, and they were looking at cremation options. And they there was like f- almost five hundred dollars. Fuck that! To get the cat cremated, and I was like, "Well, the idea is that like they do them all individually, and it's like it's not going to be your cat mixed with a bunch of other cats or you know whatever." And it's like, but still, like five hundred dollars, like that's a lot of money. I would never. Never pay that. Oh, no. like I'd be so furious. Like I'll I'll bury every cat by myself in the rain in the backyard. That's and I'll, yeah. I'll spend they, that time. They were, they were yeah. They were talking about like they had a and one of the options was like a a pet cemetery kind of thing, and it was, you know it's creepy as shit. It is, but you know it's like you said, it's giving them a place. Yeah, where they can be buried, and like we've always, you know, our cats were always buried in the backyard kind of thing. Yeah. Um, that's the way to do it. Yeah, I feel like that's more personal. You get, you get the ceremony of it. Yeah, you know, and Even, it's it's more of a personal, easier. It's a way to let go, kind of thing. Definitely. Even uh, my last beta fish that died, we made a little coffin out of a tissue box. It said nice. here, here rest Shanky, the dumbest beta fish. Ever. <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> moving into the 20th century of taxidermy. So in the 20th century, taxidermy developed anatomically accurate figures which incorporated every detail in artistically interesting poses with mounts in realistic settings and poses that were considered more appropriate for the species. So they're getting more accurate, definitely more realistic. Uh, this is quite a change from the caricatures popularly offered as hunting trophies so this is like more on the like science museum level yeah this is most of the taxidermy that you're gonna see 
in a in a respected setting nowadays are going to be um like like you said like really interesting poses or like where they you know they have like the the birds would have like their wings spread and and you know it was more realistic to what they would look like in the wild um additional modern uses of taxidermy have been uh the use of faux taxidermy or fake animal heads that draw on the inspiration of traditional taxidermy Decorating with sculpted fake animal heads that are painted in different colors has become a popular trend in interior design. That's, uh, is that good? No, I I think that's fine. Like I I think it's it skips around. Like you can find like um like a fake stylized animal head at uh or like a deer head at um target or whatever and it's you know not like it's not like you know uh, got the fur and looks like a deer head it's you know painted and colorized even like um my cousin um and his wife they have a um they have one it's a small one that they use it like it's a coat rack um that hangs on the wall and it's small you know it's not a a, you know life-size or whatever it's just a small um deer head and the antlers or stick out like a you know coat rack have you ever just style? Yeah, uh, we'll we'll get into it in a bit, but we're going to talk about some of the weird, like art, artsy, hipstery stuff that happens now. Some of yeah. it's gotten to a different level. Have you ever walked into like a full on trophy room of somebody's like kills, like a hunter's kills? I have not. No, bad vibes. Yeah, I can't I, imagine that feels good. I just, it just feels like gross. I don't know, especially when, like, you're just hunting for fun or, like, as a, a rich sport. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm not with it. No. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so the the different methods. Um, well, for, let's talk about the uh, traditional skin mount. Tell me about that. Okay. Um, so the methods taxidermist practice have improved over the last century, highlighting taxidermic quality and lowering toxicity which became like a real problem in yeah. the old days right like people taxidermists and pe- sometimes people that put these in their houses like could get poisoned over time or right some of the taxidermists did die early from their work um but the animal is first skinned in a process similar to removing the skin from a chicken prior to cooking this can be accomplished without opening the body cavity so with this method, a taxidermist usually does not need to see the internal organs or blood, which is not something I realized at all. That's yeah. wild. Uh, depending on the type of skin, preserving chemicals are applied or the skin is tanned. Uh, it's then either mounted on a mannequin made from wood, wool and wire, or polyurethane foam. Uh, clay is used to install glass eyes and can also be used for facial features like cheekbones and a prominent br- uh, brow bone. Uh, modeling clay can be used to reform features as well. If the appendage was torn or damaged, clay uh, can hold it together and add uh, muscle detail. Forms and eyes are commercially available for a number of from a number of suppliers. If not, taxidermists carve or cast their own forms. So that that remind that sounds like mortuary science kind of work to me. Yeah, yeah. It's always wild, like, when there's a a violent death with, like, a facial trauma or something, and they have to, like, 
rebuild the face with clay and like repack. Yeah, that's that crazy. Wild. Yeah. That's see, it seems absurd. I it's mean, I I get the amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 really amazing the shit that they can do, but it's it's still like. I don't know. I've, I'm not a fan of the open casket thing anyways. I'm not a fan of the burial thing at all. But the, the open casket thing in particular, I've never been yeah, a fan just, of. The, the result is never – it's never the, the memory that I want of the person in my head. I Honestly, I've always been like so impressed by it. But I feel like while it offers closure, I also feel like we weren't supposed to to see them like we're seeing like into a window we're not supposed to yeah yeah no matter no matter how good of a job that they do it's still it never looks like the person anymore at least i've never i've never had that experience where it just looked like the person was there yeah i feel like it's you're you're almost being like a, a peeping tom on death yeah <laughs> like yeah i'm not supposed to see this no peeping <laughs> So taxidermists seek to continually maintain their skills to ensure attractive, lifelike results. Mounting an animal has long been considered an art form, often involving months of work. Not all modern taxidermists trap or hunt for their prized specimens today. I would imagine very few do that. Like, yeah. At least not that often. I, I think today it seems like the the modern taxidermist is mostly commercial work done for other people like hunters or pet owners or collectors of the curious. <laughs> yeah. The the we did watch a documentary where they talked about um you know this woman would find like roadkill or her fascination with it started with like birds that were dead on the sidewalk in front of, you know, the the shop that she worked in. Yeah. And like she would pick them up and and you know you know, she read up on the subject and then she would like practice with those. And, um, yeah, I find it, I find it wild to think like, okay, so I'm not like, I'm not like a hunter anyways. Like I don't, you know, like the idea of killing an animal for sport seems wild to me because it's so unnecessary yeah. in, in, in modern times. It's just not. A thing of necessity it's like it's such a little bitch move especially the the like the big game hunts you know like there are so many testimonies of that where it's like these it's not really a hunt like they set you up in a place where like they basically corral you know some animals into this area and they bring you to it and then you know it's, a, it's almost exclusively that there's very few like uh teddy roosevelt hunts where you're like yeah at risk of being hurt it's almost always just a pay to kill yeah and he was big in the taxidermy too which i think for for his time um in the way that different. he he lived it was very different um i've always had a fascination with him as a um as a person um he i mean like i'm sure there are plenty of shitty things that can be said about him as well definitely but, but there are a lot of endearing qualities yeah yeah, yeah, th yeah. things that are that, that are like oh wow like this is a really interesting person like this is a really interesting human but yeah like the his hunting and his like you know um will of adventure 
always struck me as like, okay, this this person's actually might be kind of cool. Used to piss on the White House lawn. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty dope. There's been a couple of presidents who have done that, actually. It's funny. I'd do it. Fuck yeah. Um, so, uh, taxidermy. Uh, animals fa- <laughs> animal specimens can be frozen, then thawed at a later date to be skinned and tanned. Uh, numerous measurements are taken of the body. A uh, traditional method that remains popular today involves retaining the original skull and leg bones of a specimen and using these as the basis to create a mannequin made primarily from wood wool, uh, previously tow or hemp wool was used, and galvanized wire. Real quick, I, I will point out, I, I would say anytime you're taking measurements of a skull, <laughs> you're typically not doing good stuff. Uh, yeah. Just just as a general rule, that's probably something that may, maybe you don't need to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, another method. You're tamp- tampering with the with the machinations of God. <laughs> <laughs> God would be so disappointed. <laughs> another method is to mold the carcass in plaster and then make a copy of the animal. Copy paste. Control C. Control <laughs> right. <laughs> Make a copy of the animal using one of several methods. This is I wasn't familiar with the the plastic molding and duplicates. I thought this was pretty cool. Yeah. So uh, a final mold is then made of a polyester resin and glass cloth from which the polyurethane form is made for final production. The carcass is then removed and the mold is used to produce a cast of the animal called a form. Forms can also be made by sculpting the animal first in clay. Many companies produce stock forms in various sizes. Glass eyes are then usually added to the display, and in some cases, artificial teeth, jaws, tongue, and for some birds, artificial beaks and legs can be used. <laughs> That's like the always sunny, the, the teeth. <laughs> the, 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 bird. the bird teeth. <laughs> but I have seen uh, stuff for like, I know they pay a particular attention or detailing is often put into the exact right shine of the eye to make sure that like it's perfectly like lifelike. Yeah, I can see where that, you know, like you're not just painting on a on a wooden bead or something like it's got to have depth and have, you know, real the real kind of a glow. Yeah, of like, a wet squishy thing in there yeah i I remember this is a bit ago but there was this um artist that worked in taxidermy but his whole thing was like he was the eye specialist so like he would get the nearly finished uh taxidermy or whatever and he's his whole goal was to make the eye look perfectly lifelike so they have the prosthetic inserted eye or whatever and then he's like spending hours like just barely putting like a speck of white paint or like layers of uh clear uh glazes on it just to make it perfectly in the right shine and it's like that that is a very intimate and weird experience i'm sure yeah um so what so, about the, this? This one I did not know about this one either. Yeah, I think this one, this method is is probably the the one that I I didn't realize either. I think it's re- actually a really cool idea considering yeah. the the possibilities of it. Uh, the freeze freeze dried mount. 
Um, an increasingly popular trend is to freeze-dry the animal. Uh, for all intents and purposes, a freeze-dried mount is a mummified animal. The internal organs are removed during preparation. However, all the other muscle, uh, the, all the other tissue remains in the body. The skeleton and all accompanying accompanying musculature is still beneath the surface of the skin. The animal is positioned into the desired pose, then placed into the chamber of a special freeze drying machine designed specifically for this application. Damn, that's like some straight um, JFK Walt Disney shit. Like, yeah. f- freeze the brain in a cryo tube forever in hopes you can reanimate your pet kind of shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's fucked. It's cool, like, because you're really preserving, like, the corpse of something in its entirety as it was. But it still seems, I don't know, very, even, like, more grotesque in a way. It's It's definitely, I think the use of technology i think i feel like it's less grotesque in the way that it's um it's it's tampering with the body less yeah um but, but in a that, more unnatural way in a very much more unnatural way yes it's very very more Maybe? technologically advanced way um but i feel like that makes it like i said it's like less uh um you know, tampering with the body. It's, right. You, know, you don't have to gut me. You can just freeze dry me. At least. Yeah. 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 Well, they still have to gut you. They just don't have to remove all of the, your skin. And I think they let them off super easy, but some dudes took their, their buddy to like a, a Vegas casino or some, sh- you know what I mean? There's always something, but that's I love wild. That's so funny. Weekend at Bernie style them to the casino. <laughs> So the machine freezes the animal and also creates a vacuum in the chamber. Pressure in the chamber helps vaporize moisture in the animal's body, allowing it to dry out. The rate of drying depends on the vapor pressure. The higher the pressure, the faster the specimen dries. Vapor pressure is determined by temperature of the chamber. The higher the temperature, the higher the vapor pressure is at a given vacuum. So vacuum and heat get rid of moisture, basically. The length of time dry is, uh, or excuse me, the length of dry time is important because the rapid freezing creates less tissue distortion, like the shrinking, the warping, and the wrinkling. Uh, so this process can be done with reptiles, birds, and small mammals such as cats, rodents, and some dogs. Freeze drying is the most popular type of pet preservation. This is because it is the least invasive in terms of what is done to the animal's body after death, which is a concern of most owners. Uh, and and still, uh, most owners do not opt for the uh, traditional skin mount if they're going to have this done. Um, they're at yeah. least going to go with the freeze-dried one. I feel like any form of doing that with a pet is psychotic as fuck. Yeah, I think it's pretty wild. I can – I feel like I can understand the reasoning of it. Yeah, great. But I don't – I'm not going to do it. No. It would be, I would feel like it would just be that much more heart-wrenching. Now, what what would you think of cloning? Because there are people doing that with some animal breeds now, I believe. <sighs> I mean, I'm sure it's cool, but it's not the same animal. No. And it's, it's you know, you might as well, there are so many other animals that need homes that 
I don't know. I feel like that's it's selfish. I feel like that's a bad argument, honestly. Just because like you're those people b- probably picked that animal out to begin with. Like I, I agree with you, mm-hmm. but anyone not adopting a pet then <coughs> would be equally as weird as cloning. I mean, I, yeah, yeah, that's that's fair too, and I, I stand by that. Yeah. Um, I like, don't know. I think it's kind of cool because you like it's a perfect nature versus nurture question, but you at least do know you're getting uh, an animal that's from a very similar compatible genetic profile, and I could see that being soothing, even though it's a different animal itself i think it's weird if you name it the same name (laughs) yeah that is weird i don't know i feel like the the whole thing with pets for me is like they each they have their own personality yeah it's like they're they're, they have their own thing it's it's not the same animal it's a different animal it's a new friend it's a new you know um you know a member to your party kind of thing and i i like I like the the difference of that. I think that's that's supposed to help you grow, rather than, I mean, even if t- to your you know what you were saying, like people that are picking out animals for their specific breed or whatever, like the the dog people that get like the purebred things. Like I I don't know. I think that's so fucking weird. I agree. I think that's so fucking stupid. Like you're gonna spend all this money on this inbred ass dog. And then, like, meanwhile, there's all of these, all of these other animals that you could have for, for, for basically free that are, that need homes. That would be perfectly great pets. I 100% agree. And any pet I've had has been like a found creature. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, I do kind of understand the picking your partner on aesthetics, even like, personal relationships to picking the cat you wanted out of that litter like there still is an element of us that we can't help but pick the one we're most attracted to yeah i I can i can see that i don't know i feel like we learned with uh with my mom's cat like it was a it was a bright orange cat and she was definitely not envisioning like we had talked about her getting a cat and she was thinking about different ones like we'd seen some at like you know like the pet store or whatever not the pet store but like um well i mean basically the pet store it was like at, at pet smart or whatever and she was looking at them and she was thinking about like what kind of cat she would want and, and then my friend that i got my cat from um said their mom's cat uh just gotten pregnant and it was this bright the litter was all these little orange boys little cheeto babies yeah and uh you know it wasn't what she had had in mind but it's you know it was a free cat and you know he needed a home anyways so it was like all right cool we'll... and you learn to to love them all and the like same. oh my god she's obsessed yeah. with this cat like she loves you know she couldn't you couldn't you know take this cat away from her even if she you were like well let me trade you for this prettier one that you know you like the aesthetic of more it's like no he's got his little his little white boots and his he's got a little <laughs> little thing around his neck a little white thing that makes it look like he's got a little bow tie on you know she she you know you you come to love it and it's i don't know yeah i, yeah. I love the difference in it definitely and it it's a weird like lesson in accepting acceptance or taking someone as they are, you know. Yeah, 
I, I do think like like in the Victorian area, it was the collections of exotic birds, right? Yeah, think, that was the biggest thing. I think in the in the future, it's going to be like your your way to show off uh, power influence will be your your clone collections. Your clone collections, all of your uh, all of your dead homies, you got chilling in back cryovax in your. Or even like, uh, in, you know, instead of collecting video games or cards or whatever, you're like, I have every edition of dogs that have ever been put out. <laughs> like, check out. I have I have every version of Mastiff breeds from 18, whatever. You know what I mean? NFTs, never heard of them. <laughs> Just got dogs of every. <laughs> I own Shih Tzu. <laughs> right. Holy shit. That'd be cool. So in cases of large pets, such as dogs or cats, Freeze-drying is also the best way to capture the animal's expression as it looked in life, another important concern of many owners. Freeze-drying equipment is costly and requires much upkeep. The process is also time-consuming. Therefore, freeze-drying is generally very expensive and uh, just a costly way to preserve an animal. The drawback to this method is that all freeze-dried mounts are extremely susceptible to insect damage. which is gross so this is because they contain large areas of dried tissue uh the meat and the fat for insects to feed upon uh traditional mounts are far less susceptible because they contain virtually no residual tissues or none sometimes even none at all yeah um regardless of how well a taxidermy mount is prepared all taxidermy is susceptible to insect damage Taxidermy mounts are targeted by the same beetles and fabric moths that destroy wool sweaters and fur coats that infest grains and flour in the pantries. That's gross. Yep. Imagine, yeah, your favorite pet is full of bugs now. That's, yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. It's gross. Yeah, very gross. So, um, reproduction mounts. So, some methods of creating a trophy mount do not involve preserving the actual body of the animal. This is like the more ethical approach, or one of the more ethical approaches. Instead, detailed photos and measurements are taken of the animal so a taxidermist can create an exact replica in resin or fiberglass that can be displayed in place of the real animal. No animals are killed in the creation of this type of trophy mount. One situation where this is practiced is in the world of sport fishing, where catch and release is becoming increasingly prevalent. Uh, Reproduction mounts are commonly created for trout, bass, and large saltwater species, such as swordfish and the blue marlin. Uh, One of the things I saw in one of the documents we were looking at was like a a 1,700-pound marlin, uh, when reproduced this way, um, would only weigh like 75 pounds. Oh, really? So it makes it huh. way easier to 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 deal with and to handle and own. Yeah. Holy shit. I, I always thought the fish often looked too wet though. Is that just me? Yeah, I don't know. There's something weird so about that. Shiny. Yeah. yeah, they they don't look they look like pla- like wet plastic opposed to like the real texture of a fish slime. Yeah. Of the fish slime. <laughs> Dude, I couldn't believe how fucking big and heavy tuna get. Oh yeah, there's some big oh, motherfuckers. God, the the sushi documentary we did, uh, where they were shining the light through the the slices of tuna. Yeah, I just did not realize 
you know, those are thin slices, but that that's a, that's a lot of sushi for yeah, one the, big the ass. The motherfuckers tuna. were massive. Whew. Another situation where reproduction trophies are created is when endangered species are involved. Endangered and protected species, such as rhinoceroses, are hunted with rifles loaded with tranquilizer darts rather than real bullets. While the animal is unconscious, the hunter poses for photos with the animal while it's measured for the purpose of creating a replica, or to establish what size of prefabricated fiberglass trophy head can be purchased to most closely approximate the actual animal. The darted animal is not harmed, so they say. Then the uh, hunter then displays the fiberglass head on the wall in lieu of the real animal's head to commemorate the experience of the hunt, which we've already discussed. The hunt wasn't really a hunt. Right. It was, they drove out there and they set him up with an animal (laughs) and a trank gun. Murdered an animal. Yeah. Yeah, And it's, it's like, it's so dumb. Like, you know, like they say like the animal wasn't harmed, but it's like. You still came over. It's like, can you imagine, like, if you were like just going to work one day and you got tranked, and yes. you wake up later on? <laughs> <laughs> I've done it many a time. <laughs> okay, just driving to work. All of a sudden, I, I stick myself with something I forgot. I'm out. I'm back up. Like, holy shit! <laughs> it, it's so it's so off putting to me. It's like you're walking up into their area. Like, leave them the fuck alone. Yeah. Like they said, they they've already got. I mean, it's definitely the way more ethical route. It is way more ethical, but the, the the better way would be like, don't go fuck with this rhino. If you want a rhino head on your fucking wall, you know, go, go take your ass to the fucking zoo. Go look at the rhino and enjoy that view and then go to – uh, you know, uh, or you even go out in the wild and, and maybe, you know – pay some local people to show you some animals or something. I don't know. And then, then get home and then buy the fiberglass mount anyways, instead of having to shoot it with a fucking trank gun to prove yeah. that you're a man. Honestly, I still think the fiberglass, uh, the, I think these mounts are probably lame as fuck though. The, a lot of them looked really cool, but a lot of them looked really how well done. Who could it be? You still know it's fake. I mean, Okay, would you rather have a fake one on your wall or a real one? No, I say it, I say if you're going if you are questioning the morals involved enough to get a fake one, then you shouldn't just have any one. Like well, it, agreed. Yeah, what, but I what, just, what I'm saying is if you if you feel like that you need that this is what makes you then feel I like say a man. Get the real one then. Kill the fucking animal. Like if you're gonna get a fake one, like that just seems so fucking like lame. Right? I don't know. I don't think so. I think I think for uh, I mean it goes back to like the decor thing. If it's like something like you want to have, you know, animal shit, but like like I wouldn't want to ever like I wouldn't have one anyways. I'm right. not I'm not you know supporting. I, I also I think it's stupid. I don't know. I think it looks dumb. I can see in certain design things where it makes sense to have. You know, if you know this this appearance of a, uh, you know, a hunt room or whatever, but it's if you're gonna do it, like we have the technology now, you don't need to go out and merc animals for it. I just think the fakes are lame. 
I I don't know. I but I something I've always really liked is the the poachers of poachers for ivory stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The groups that go together hunting the poachers. That shit's dope as fuck. And yeah, they, that's dope. I was. It's crazy though. They had the practice of um, they tried to poach, quote unquote, poach the all the animals with ivory to saw off their horns, like trank them, saw off the ivory because it it bothers the animal, but it doesn't hurt them long term. It grows back, and that way the poachers can't get it, and they're not as likely to kill them because there's no ivory to gain. So there's like government military stuff or non-profit groups that go around sawing off the horns and tusks of all the ivory animals which is really it's an interesting problem yeah it's like it's does it suck yeah does it keep that species alive i guess so yeah the problem is it also has the like unintended side effect of then the poachers can be influenced to kill the animals anyway so that they stop doing it. Yeah. Which is, you know, when do you let evil win kind of question. Right. Yeah. Um, so the next one is the uh, recreation mounts. So recreation mounts are accurate life-size representations of either living or extinct species that are created using materials not found on that animal being rendered. So they'll utilize the fur, feathers, and skin of other species of animal to create that piece of taxidermy. So according to the National Taxidermy Association, recreations are defined as renderings which include no natural parts of the particular animal being portrayed. A recreation may include original carvings and sculptures. Uh, recreation may use natural parts provided the parts are not from the species being per- portrayed. Uh, for existence, a recreation eagle could be constructed using turkey feathers, or a cowhide could be used to simulate African game. A famous example of recreation mount is a giant panda created by taxidermist Ken Walker that uh, he constructed out of dyed and bleached black bear fur. I guess I understand that, but you're still like justifying killing less rare animals for more rare animals, right? Yeah, and I, I think... Once, again, I think some of these cases, like, did they hunt down that black bear to make this panda? Maybe. You know, was it a situation where, um, you know, it's, you know, parks and, you know, the wildlife protection services found, you know, this animal that had died of natural causes or whatever. And they're like, well, what the fuck do we do with it? And like, hey, we can donate this to science and create something with it. Maybe. Hopefully. That's a cool thought. Yeah. I'd like to live in a world of hope where that happens sometimes, and it's not all just they're killing a bear to make a panda. Speaking of which, have you ever heard the term panda diplomacy? I want to say I have heard it, but I don't know what it means. So it's it's really just the practice uh, uh, that China does where they gift like rare, you know, special pan- giant pandas to other countries as a tool for diplomacy. And it's like their sign of like friendship and bonding with said country. Like it's like one of the, their more ultimate signs of respect. That's kind of wild. Yeah, suppose I I don't know if this is true, so don't take that as truth, but I believe China recently gave Putin uh, a special giant panda. Well, 
and there were all these like you know teeth lead like politics teeth tea leaf readers saying this was like signs of war you know what i mean yeah it's interesting though they've given uh i believe 20 something 24 pandas to nine different nations over the years kind of wild cool yeah so the next one is uh the study skins this is interesting yeah, a study skin is a taxidermic zoological specimen prepared in a minimalistic fashion that is concerned only with preserving the animal's skin, not the shape of the animal's body. As the name implies, study skins are used for scientific study and research and are housed mainly by museums. A study skin's sole purpose is to preserve data, not to replicate an animal in a lifelike state. Museums keep large collections of study skins in order to conduct comparisons of physical characteristics to other study skins of the same species. Study skins are also kept because DNA can be extracted from them when needed at any point in time. That's cool. Imagine going through the binder racks of all the study skins. Yeah. That would be cool. A study skin's preparation is extremely basic. After the animal is skinned, fat is methodically scraped off the underside of the hide. The under, underside of the hide is then rubbed with borax or cedar dust to help it dry faster. The animal is then stuffed with cotton and sewn up. Animals are laid flat on their belly. Birds are prepared lying on their back. Study skins are dried in these positions to keep the end product as slender and streamlined as possible so large numbers of specimens can be stored side by side in flat drawers while occupying a minimum amount of space. Interesting. Make little, uh, make little animal pillows. Yeah, but they'd be all squished. I picture them just as the skins, and I guess it's really like a, a squished pillow of the animal. Yeah. Um, the last one is um, the, probably the most modern uh, process. It's called plastination. Okay. Um, and if you're familiar at all with the um, the bodies exhibit that went around, uh, yeah, started yeah. going around about like, it was like 10, 12 years ago they started Something doing like that. that. Um, they have like these, it's literally human bodies that have been preserved, you know, uh, 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 uh cut apart in some fashions and, and to preserve the muscle tissue to show the entire inside of the, of the human body. Or they'll do like just the bone systems or I, I always like the nerves, the nerves ones. Nerves. So that's wild. That's, uh, that's one of the most terrifying looking things about the human body is the nerve yeah. system. Oh, my God. Uh, So four steps are used in the standard process of plastination. Uh, There's fixation, dehydration, forced impregnation in a vacuum, and hardening. Water and lipid tissues are replaced by curable polymers, which include silicone, epoxy, and polyester copolymer. The first step of plastination, fixation, frequently uses a formaldehyde-based solution and serves two functions. Dissecting the specimen to show specific anatomical elements can be time-consuming. Formaldehyde or other preserving solutions help prevent decomposition of the tissues. They might also confer a degree of rigidity, which you want at least some degree of. So this can be beneficial in maintaining the shape or arrangement of a specimen. A stomach might be inflated or a leg bent at the knee, for example. After any necessary dissections have taken place, the specimen is placed in a bath of acetone Mm. at negative 20 to negative 30 Celsius. 
the volume of the bass should be ten times that of the specimen. The acetone is renewed two times over the course of six weeks. The acetone draws out all the water and replaces it inside the cells. God, I just would like to take a second and reflect on just how wonderful acetone is. What, what a yeah. wonderful chemical. You can do so many great things with it, and it smells so lovely. It smells great. You can clean up uh, glues and adhesives as well as uh, nail polish. Yes. Uh, it's And preserve bodies. It's almost as nice as gasoline. You know, yeah. uh, the poor... Actually, I think I like acetone more than I like the smell of gas. I, I must admit, I love huffing gas the most. That's... It, it's a dirty high, but man, it I've feels never, good. I've never huffed gas. You've never huffed gas? I've never huffed gas. Oh my God. I've, I've you know, next, caught a good whiff of it at the, the gas station before. You know, you do the... Next time you're in town, but, uh, it, my treat... <laughs> I, I look forward to sharing the experience. Hey man, that's expensive nowadays. <laughs> at the price at these prices, with, with Biden driving up the gas prices, <laughs> we can't have gas anymore. I mean, I might as well just get heroin. Fuck it, is getting pretty cheap. Um, God damn. You know, poor man's napalm. You just melt styrofoam into a plastic container of gasoline and it turns into a nice little putty that goes right up it yeah that's we used to talk about making sticky grenades out of yeah oh good times (laughs) so in the third step the specimen is then placed into a bath of liquid polymer such as silicone rubber polyester or epoxy resin by creating a vacuum the acetone is made to boil at a low temperature Ooh, that sounds sinister as the acetone vaporizes and leaves the cells it draws the liquid polymer in behind it leaving a cell filled with liquid plastic damn that's fucking metal as fuck yeah i think i saw that the um the freezing point of acetone was like negative 70 celsius Mm-mm. drink um, it all year round I, yeah i was like well fuck that's i could clean off my windshield with that yeah. that's <laughs> more uses for acetone <laughs> so the plastic must then be cured with gas heat or ultraviolet light to harden it a specimen can vary from a full human body to a small piece of animal organ and they are known as plastinates mm. Once plastinated, the specimens and bodies are further manipulated and positioned prior to curing of the polymer chains. That's wild because you're almost like resetting the specimen before like synthetic rigor mortis sets in. Yeah. That's kind of cool. You're like making a real organic creature into an action figure in front of you. Like that's wild. Yeah, man, make a full homie action figure. I'm down. I mean, plastinate the shit out of me when I'm <laughs> I'm cool with it. I've I've multi multiple times considered um, donating my body to science. Yeah, sure. I don't know what the fuck they would use it for, or to art. I don't know. Probably some med I'm student. Dead. I don't give a fuck. Yeah, cutting you, cutting you open. That'd be fun. We oh, we do have a problem with. Uh, uh, I'll teach you. I'll I'll teach you anatomy, <laughs> just like my father, Sokolsky. <laughs> uh, Sokolsky, what a what a maniac! That uh, t- 
Dude, yeah. I loved re- researching that episode. What a cool yeah, dude. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should go listen to that. That's a yeah, good one. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I also thought it worth noting that despite the obvious dangers, that some modern taxidermists still confess to using arsenic on extra special projects because other chemicals don't quite have that same magically lifelike result. And I thought that was pretty interesting. They, they did not seem concerned about the toxicity in like low amounts on special projects but it, i mean i don't know if, if it's interesting it's interesting yeah the one of the um one of the uh, uh um guys was talking about the the various birds and stuff that he had the victorian birds and they're all under glass um but they all were done with arsenic and the guy was like you know, wouldn't you be concerned about having all this arsenic, you know, like vapors in your home and like the people can get, you can still get sick from it that way. And he was like, no, they're all under glass, but even still, um, you know, we bring so much formaldehyde in on different various products that you buy. Like a lot of clothing, I know, like they um, spray it with formaldehyde to keep bugs and shit off of it. Yeah. Uh, during transport and whatever. It's actually, so, it's actually been a problem in like the last 10 years with like, children's clothing made in foreign countries like infants that may be especially sensitive to those chemicals and it's oh yeah i can see not listed because it's just some you know sweatshop halfway across the world and they get these clothes and then the baby gets sick um you gotta wash everything before you wear it yeah it's it's a a weird definitely a weird problem also i think there is like a bit of a misconception about the strength of arsenic i mean it is a very potent poison but like you can make it from apple seeds and shit it it, it takes a decent amount like even in like uh especially during the 70s and 80s where like arsenic was one of the best poisons to, to murder someone with like before ricin and different shit like that like it, you typically have to ingest a decent amount of it so like the fumes off a piece of taxidermy is probably not too dangerous it's more like the lifetime of working with it yeah so on to the artsy and weird shit of anthropomorphic taxidermy i know you're excited about this yeah this is this is real wild shit yeah like uh what were you saying that house of a thousand corpses the (laughs) the mermaid boy or the yeah fish boy (laughs) so in the late 1800s a style known as anthropomorphic taxidermy became popular Mounted animals were dressed as people or displayed as if engaged in human activities. <laughs> so fucking weird. So the the it's so, it's the most British shit I've ever heard. First of all, <laughs> the best known practitioner in this genre was the English taxidermist Walter Potter, whose most famous work was the Death and Burial of Cock Robin. <laughs> uh, among his other scenes were a rat's den being raided by the local police rats. Um, or the village school, which featured uh, 48 little rabbits busy riding on tiny slates while a kitten's tea party <laughs> displayed feline etiquette and a game of croquet. This, oh. like, this is morbid. If you have to kill 48 kit- rabbits for your, your piece of art, I think you're doing a bad art. <laughs> yeah, you're doing bad art. Um <laughs> Apart from the simulations of human situations, he also had uh, added examples of bizarrely deformed animals, such as two-headed lambs and four-legged chickens. 
Potter's Museum was so popular that an extension was built to br- on the platform at Bramber Railway Station. Hey, are you familiar with the Cartiff Giant by any chance? Mm, once again, that sounds familiar, but I'm not. It's not ringing. So, kind of during the same time, all these amphromor- anthropomorphic taxonomy pieces, like the animals with multiple heads, Siamese, all, all that shit, like. Oh uh, yeah, I, I just looked it up. I know. What you're yeah, like. About. It was. I think the first big one that was popularized was the mermaid one, and it was a monkey skeleton on a fish of some sort, and it was thought to be real by scientists for like a, a short amount of time. So like they were like drawing crowds at circuses and things by making these fake taxidermies. Even the the jackalope is the the most popular one probably. But things during the the old circus days, such as like. The Cartiff Giant were like faked gigantic skeletons of giants. And like people would, this person, and there were many other giants that toured the world, they would like fake discover this previously planted skeletal structure of a giant. Like they happened to come across it in an archaeological dig. And it was basically a form of like art or taxidermy. And then they would try to like make money by touring circuses or science museums around the world which is wild because the the cardiff giant in particular looks nothing like a like a preserved body in any way no actually uh last podcast on the left did a series on it at some point that was pretty good um other victorian taxidermists known for their iconic anthropomorphic taxidermy uh work are william hart and his son edward hart they gained recognition for their famous series of dioramas feature, featuring boxing squirrels. I, I have seen these, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, one four-piece set of boxing squirrels diorama, circa 1850, sold at auction in 2013 for record prices. The four dioramas were created as a set, with each diorama portraying the squirrels at different stages during the boxing match. However, the set was broken up and each was sold separately at the same auction. The set was one of a number that created over the years featuring boxing squirrels. So father and dad just creating dead boxing squirrels. Cool. Just, just yeah, backyard killing squirrels. And I'm sure it's very funny, but what a weird thing to do with your dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know, it was 1850. They didn't have the internet then. <laughs> they didn't have Netflix or YouTube. Uh, famous examples of modern anthropomorphic taxidermy include the work of artist Adele Morse, who gained international attention with her stoned fox sculpture series, and the work of artist Serena Brewer, known for her Siamese twin squirrels and flying monkeys partaking in human activities. So goofy. And yeah. this kind of overlaps with the concept of rogue taxidermy, which is sometimes referred to as taxidermy art. Um, it is a form of mixed media sculpture, rogues taxidermy, art references, traditional trophy or natural history museum taxidermy, but it is not always constructed out of taxidermied animals. It can also be constructed entirely from synthetic materials. So this is like the weird art shit with it, right? Yeah. Uh, so additionally, rogue taxidermy is not necessarily figurative as it can be abstract and does not need to resemble an animal. It can be a small decorative object or a large-scale room-sized installation. 
there is a very broad spectrum of styles within the genre, some of which also falls in the category of mainstream art. Yeah, one of one of the videos we came across was this woman, I, I am blanking on her name, but she did animal taxidermy, but with human heads and faces. And I was uh, Kate. Ooh, Kate something. It, it, was a very creepy effect because like it would be like a deer with a human's head which is something there's a name for that particular creature because i believe it's from japanese mythology but like she would put different human faces and heads on animals and it's a very disturbing outcome <laughs> neither the term nor the genre emerged from the world of traditional taxidermy the genre was born from forms of fine art that utilize some of the components found in the construction of traditional taxidermy mounts. The term rogue taxidermy was coined in 2004 by an artist collective called the Minnesota, the Minnesota Association of Rogue Taxidermists. The Minneapolis-based group was founded by artists Serena Brewer, Scott Bibis, and <laughs> Robert Marbury as means to unite their respective mediums and different styles of sculpture. The definition of rogue taxidermy set forth by the individuals who form the genre is, as quote, a genre of pop surrealist art characterized by mixed-media sculpture containing conventional taxidermy-related materials that are used in an unconventional manner. So the, the artist name we were trying to come up with earlier, the uh, the artist that does the taxidermy with the human faces, her name is Kate Clark. Yeah, the the rogue taxidermy thing, I think the, the pop surrealist art is is a very good term yeah. for what it is, for what a lot of it is. Kind of hipster trash though, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean. it's, it's very um, goth girl with a hobby. Or uh, what's the other word? Uh, kitschy. Right? Yeah. It just, yeah. I don't know. To the ta it always feels so fakey looking to me. Even if yeah. it's cool, like it's one of those things that's great at a distance, but up close it just feels like trash put together to look like something. Mm -hmm. I don't like a lot of craft stuff, like, especially with animal stuff. Yeah. A lot of it can be really weird. Like the idea of a jackalope. I love. What a beautiful concept. That would be so cool. But depicting yeah. a jackalope or like someone making a jack, it just feels so lame. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of already cool animals that exist already. Dude, fish are aliens. A fish are aliens. <laughs> aliens are on this earth. All we have to do is look. Apart from describing a genre of fine art, the term rogue taxidermy has expanded in recent years and has also become an adjective applied to unorthodox forms of traditional taxidermy, such as anthropomorphic mounts and the composite mounts where two or more mammals, two, excuse me, two or more animals are spliced together, such as sideshow gaffs or conjoined freak animals and mounts of jackalopes or other fictional creatures. In addition to being the impetus for the art movement, the inception of the genre also marked a resurgence in interest in conventional forms of taxidermy. So this, this coming... Uh, uh, taking taxidermy into our own hands and and making new shit out of it. Um, even if people were like, oh, that's cool, but I don't want that. That makes me just want, you know, a, a head mounted on the wall kind of thing, which is, you know, shitty. But I don't know. Yeah. 
I don't know. I think I'm like understanding my thoughts and feelings more by the the end of our, our base information. I just feel like if you're gonna put, if you're gonna do it, don't do it fake. Put put a real corpse on your wall, right? Now I think that's dumb. I think it's pretty gross, probably immoral. But if you're gonna do it, do the do the real McCoy. Put put that corpse on your wall. But I think it is stupid. And I think the idea of like creating the these sculptures basically out of a real animal, it's just like I love dead shit. I'm definitely a goth kid. Uh definitely have had lots of skulls and stuff. But it's like it's just kind of gross and lame. And like I love the idea of making those things, but like make a painting or sculpture of it. I don't get it's like having a favorite serial killer. Like Yeah. I can it, see that, yeah. It's like a morbid fascination. And I still might put an animal skull in my house, but it's like probably not a cool, great thing to do. I you didn't know. You, you know, you didn't like go out and kill an animal for the skull. Like I have in my personal possession, I have a cat skull. But it was only because I was cleaning out my garage and in a pile of dirt that I was about to move, I found a, a collection of bones, um, one of which was a really well-preserved skull that I later determined to be a cat skull. Um, which is – it's cool. But it's like you acquired it naturally. And I, I, yeah. I've had random small collections of things where it's the same way. Like it – you know – it crossed paths with my life and I like probably honored it or like showcased it in a selfish way, but it's still like, it's different than like going to purchase or acquire it for just to show off. I don't know. It's just weird. Yeah. The, I, I've decided that in the spring, um, when the, the ground falls, I'm going to, uh, move, uh, I'm going to, you know, dig a little hole and um, move the the remains into the hole. Um, I've I've been thinking of trying to name the cat because I do want to make a little plaque for it of some type. Um, I decided to name it Spectre. That's so much work. I would just to, to, throw to bury it. the remains of the. I mean, it's in my garage. I have to get it out. I would, it's a big pile of I would dirt and shit that is also that is also bones of cat. I would literally take a dustpan. <laughs> I would dust them up and then I would place it near a soft pile of dirt or just Nah, I like I like the idea of I mean I don't believe in ghosts but I like the idea of a ghost kitty. Oh, it's a beautiful idea. Wa- wandering wandering my grounds. All right, here's a I'll, I'll open this up a little more generally. Like why the fuck do we respect corpses at all? It seems like a very antiquated uh concept. Like when I die i don't want someone to like purposely disrespect my corpse but i also don't think there should be any demand to honor it yeah and i I agree with that um i think there is a romanticism to it definitely um where especially with people that you care about um or people or animals that you care about um, I think there's a the way that like you would never want to see them mistreated or you would you want to give them, you know, comfort, even if the, you know, 
regardless of what you believe of, you know, the afterlife or whatever, there is, there is a thing where it's like, but I, I want to be sure. I want to be certain, you know, I want to, there's, there's a, like I said, I think it's more of a romantic side of it though, where you want to, I don't know. You still feel like you're doing the best thing yeah. by them. It just feels like most of the people drawn to taxidermy, it's be, it's out of a curious, a curiosity, right? Like they love and respect these animals and they want to honor them, right? Yeah. And like, outside of hunters, which I think are lame as fuck, right? But the reality is like, you're like almost finding a loophole in social like graces because like the reality is if that animal's alive, you can't torture it. You can't fuck it. Right. Like we want to respect the animals. Like you can't do evil shit to it, but you can kill it, skin it, stuff it, stitch it, put it in your house. Like you can do all these other levels of like degradation in a like selfish form of like showing off and honoring the corpse where it's, it's just seems so delusional. Like I'm, but I'm drawn to it. Like, I think it's like, if I walked past a cat skeleton or a stuffed bear, I'm going to be like, Holy shit, that's cool as fuck. And then like 30 seconds later, I'm like, that's actually pretty fucked up. Like, why the fuck is that cool? Yeah. Yeah. Having, having the display thing, having the collection of stuff is, I think really weird and, morbid like i said i i, I have the the cat skull and i realized later on like I, I was doing the thing where it's like i don't want to like dishonor this and i was trying to first i was like i was trying to keep it away from my cat like she would have any fucking idea what it was sure and then it was like okay this is dumb i like i think that it's um the the gothic kid side of me is like this is cool to have but like i only because it was found and because it was like, um, you know, it, it, it came with the house kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The whole, the whole preservation of the body afterward is, it's weird because it's, I don't know. It just it's, seems like the ultimate form of respect would be to let, the creature rest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. To 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 doing the the taxidermy shit, I think is weird, especially with like pets and loved ones and shit. It's like just just let it go, let it go. Don't. I mean, especially for grieving, I feel like the the holding on to it is is detrimental. Skip that sk- cat skull right across a lake. See how yeah. many skips you can get with that lucky stone. <laughs> that lucky that lucky cat skull. <laughs> It's like um, Frank Reynolds said, uh, to, uh, uh, when uh, when I die, just throw me in the trash. <laughs> roll me up and smoke me. Yeah, roll me up and smoke me. Do a lot of my ashes. I, I don't know. I just, I think I'm, I feel like it's the type of stuff, like, even five, ten years ago, like, I just wouldn't have given a fuck at all. And I, I still, I feel like I can understand how I logically feel about it or what I think is like most ethical, but I still don't like really give a fuck. Like even if someone is like dishonoring the remains of the animal by stuffing it, it's like, it's already dead. Like 
I don't yeah. get why anyone would pay for it, but I don't I don't really care either. I don't know. It just seems like a weird thing. Like many of these modern taxidermists, like they're stuffing all these animals in their fridge, they're getting roadkill, they're getting hunters to pay them crypto money to right. <laughs> ship them a tiger. Like what a weird way to like meet your your like morbid curiosities like it's a it's like a self-deception i think yeah have you ever have you had you know anybody that's uh that collects bones or skulls or anything like that definitely i mean i borderline used to but it was all stuff by coincidence sarah does my girlfriend a little bit um most of it's natural too occasionally she'll buy some bones to like make something out of so it's not like something i have like a hard stance against uh i just don't fully get the people that are super into it yeah that make it a personality trait yeah and it's almost it's almost always a magnet for damaged people and it's like a way to like like have control and maybe heal themselves a bit but it just uh I don't know. There's just there are, there are other arts and crafts. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is from someone who definitely like I used to spray paint roadkill like little hearts around them to, yeah. to give them a grave because they didn't make it to the other side of the war- the road. Like I understand weird shit. Um, I just think taxidermy specifically is pretty odd, yeah. and like both like considered very odd by a lot of people but at the same time very like socially acceptable too to like put a deer corpse on your wall yeah i think i think the home shit is is wild i think the the use of taxidermy by museums and to like to preserve an image of an animal i think that's fine that's i think that's agreed it's scientific in a way that like we didn't have this technology before and that's why we have like the shitty representation of dinosaurs and shit that we do, you know, and like extinct animals that we do because there wasn't any record of it besides, you know, the, the bones and shit that we find. And then they try to piece it together and like, this is what they look like. And then we're finding out, we were realizing later on that like, Oh, you know, dinosaurs had feathers, you know, like these were, these are birds. These are, you know, bird skeletons. Big, and completely, yeah, these aren't just big giant lizards. There's other shit going on here. And then you have to, like, go back and rewrite the history books and shit. But if we have this already that's like, like, this is what these animals look like, you know. So in a hundred years when there are no fucking rhinos left over, you know, we have that. So I think that's part of the reason... Anything sciencey feels much more acceptable. Like, I, if I disagree with the concept of zoos, let's say these animal prisons, but like, like I said earlier, we're not meant to see a cheetah in our, in our shitty cities, right? So, right. like, but if I have the option of sacrificing one cheetah to put in a museum that can be seen by millions. I feel like that's a fair trade-off for the amount of knowledge that like and benefit sense of wonder you can instill in kids and people. I feel like that's a lot more fair than maybe like 
imprisoning one forever. Although if you're just imprisoning one, it's not as bad as maybe killing it. It's a weird, weird soul math. Yeah, I feel. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I don't. I don't want to be on the the record of being like, oh, I'm pro zoo, but I definitely see the benefit of a of a well established organization where they they practice you know um good quality care and like working with animals that are endangered and shit like that like the Cincinnati Zoo in particular is really good they're world renowned for their breeding programs of like sure, it was sure. the first Sumatran rhino born in captivity in like 500 years and shit like that and like I think there's a lot of good that could yeah. come of a zoo. In most cases, that's not happening. Okay. I think you're right, though. I think most of the time, more good than bad probably does happen. No, I don't I don't think it's in most of the case more good than bad. I think most of the cases, it's bad. I don't but think that's I think true, in, a, in, a, in a lot, in a good, well-organized and, and established zoo, that a lot of good can come of it. See, I would even be willing to be generous enough that most zoos aren't doing that much bad shit, and they probably do more cons- work for ultimate conservation than they do negative. Mm-hmm. So I, I agree. Like, it, I don't think it's like that big of a deal or bad. But if you think about it in the sense like, would if you wanted zoos to exist? Would you be willing to personally round up and cage those animals? No. See, that's where no. it, it, just that simple question for me is like enough. Then, like, then I probably shouldn't like zoos. And the thing is, like, I probably think it's bad, but I'm still always going to go. It as like a business market, they kind of have the public by the balls because it's like. This is literally the only chance in your life you get to see any of these animals. So how can you not like it or be willing to pay? I can see that. But I also like I if you told me tomorrow, "Hey, the city of Cincinnati or Detroit, we don't have a single tiger. My people will never see a tiger. I'm flying to the jungle and I'm caging one up or I'm going to wherever the fuck and I'm going to stuff one and millions of people would see it." I'd be like even if it's for the greater good and you're going to save more tigers, I'd be like, that's still kind of fucked up. That's still pretty fucked up, yeah. So it's like I like zoos, but I don't – you know what I mean? Yeah. It, often cases, um, a lot of zoos have like – the some of the animals that they have is, is like to release them into captivity yeah, would yeah. be bad. Like they would die. Yeah, and they do um, breeding programs and re put things in the they do all kinds of good shit. Yeah, and there there is one instance of this. Like I've seen this in a lot of zoos or a lot of, you know, like wildlife things. There is there is in in Florida there is a um like a wildlife protection park kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you can tell a lot of what they did was trying to give these injured animals like a second chance at life kind of thing. But there was one one of the exhibits in particular was like their eagles, and like these eagles were like injured in ways that they couldn't like fly. They you know could barely take care of themselves, kind of thing, and you could just see like 
you could see the like they're they weren't there anymore. It just seemed like they were just. They have the the sensei too of eagles with broken wings. And it's like they're it's just so sad to see like their entire thing is like being able being this apex predator bird that's in a cage. Yeah, you know, like they should be able to like soar for miles and miles and you know that's their whole domain and it's cut down to this tiny little and at least in Cincinnati like the the exhibit they have for you know the their eagles is is tremendous. It's a very large but to your point, the crippled one is just like at a crossroads in the park with like a shitty little stream. They can't limp across. Like yeah. They look, they look derped out. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. They're it's checked like, out. It's They're so brutal to look at. Yeah. It's, it's like, I guess they're giving them, you know, they're, they're keeping them alive. Well, it's the but, same. But at, but at like at what cost? Like it's, a, is it really living its life kind of thing? Well, it's the same kind of argument going back to like our, our vegan episode where like if you're not willing to kill the animal yourself, you probably don't deserve to eat it. If you're not willing to enslave the animal, you probably don't deserve to pay a ticket to look at it. If you're not yeah. willing to like cut up the body and skin it, stuff it and hang it on your wall yourself, you probably don't deserve to admire it. That That's I think – and I'm – I can feel that way or think that is like a correct ethical stance or philosophy or whatever. And then I could uh, be hypocritical of each one of those in my own way. I, like, I, I feel like I feel like when you pay money to go to a good zoo, you are providing the, the resources for other people to do that in your place. But you're also... It's the same thing with the ivory uh, conundrum. You're also incentivizing they enslave more animals. That's why I say um, good zoos. It's like I but mean, good I, zoos I, will still capture more animals. Um, I mean, it's not like the Cincinnati Zoo is sending people out to like grab up animals and bring them back. They're no, but, usually it's like they're transferred from other zoos or they're you know. Well, they've got to come from nature at some point. The more successful zoos, the more non-successful or ethical ones, too. That's probably true. I'm, yeah, I'm being a little devil's advocate because I don't necessarily think zoos are bad. I just, if I don't feel like I could put that animal in a cage, I don't know, even if it's for a good reason. I don't know if I should... Even though I do, I don't know if I should be willing to pay to go look at it in the cage. Right? I mean, I feel like that's a, a little extremist way of, of seeing it. Like I said, I feel like if – like the reason that I'm not willing to to do that with – you know, say in a situation that would be for good. We'll, we'll use the Sumatran rhino example as one. It's like the, the, the species itself is going extinct. There's so few of them. And, you know, there's um, one from, you know, that's been, you know, passed around or whatever. I, I don't know how they how Cincinnati Zoo came about this one. But the idea is that, like, in, in a good 
maintained place with a good program, they can try to bring about a new one. They can try to, you know, give it the 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 habitat that it needs and the stimulus it needs to uh, potentially breed more. And that's by by doing that, they're doing research to uh, try to induce that again in the wild. So if by it maybe I don't have the I don't have the wherewithal to go out and capture a fucking rhino, but if if they are able to if they are able to get their hands on one and you know care for it in a way that I could never could, then I support that. But that's still just an appeal to scarcity because like or, or rarity because it's like. Just because it's one of the last few, are you will even even if they can treat it better than you could, is that still better than take like taking it out of its home? Like that rhino could have lived its uh, best life uh, uninhibited by humans and died as the last one, but instead we decided to do X Y Z to it that it didn't consent to in the in the hopes to break that scarcity true it's like if if it was the last human of like a one of those tribes like off in brazil that had never spoke to, to the outside world before and we're like hey our our satellite show there's only three of them left and if we don't intervene this species this tribe of humans will never their lineage would never survive so we're going to go in with the military capture them take their eggs uh do some in vitro take their eggs <laughs> but that's what they're they're, yeah. fu- they're making yeah, these I, rhinos I know, fuck I each other i know what you mean yeah i mean it's just the way you said it <laughs> like, like they're laying eggs but i know what you meant just steal <laughs> steal all the eggs make some sunny side ups but i mean it, it's uh so much easier to justify it on an animal especially when the animal is rare and we're doing it to save it but those animals didn't ask to be saved we're saving them because we want them to exist for us True. right like yeah that that rhino is still living a shittier life than before we got involved in its natural cycle i mean in, in a situation where they might have saved it from like a poacher or something but that's that, still and that's, us. and that's the way they came upon it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. It, you're, I, I agree. If that's the way they came upon it, then like that's the be- we'd be doing the better alternative. But we can't. You know, the poachers is still us as a collective. <sighs> it's a shitty, terrible world out there. It sucks. I feel humans like humans are garbage. Yeah, and I, I feel like I'm capable of arguing ethical standards that I could never live up to either. It's, it's not <laughs> like right now I might be the, the one that says I'm never going to support a zoo, but like five years ago or like a couple bad days, I could be the dude hunting uh, a rare tiger just for the, the hell of it. Like I, I'm not that far from like the poacher or the poacher of poachers. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're all, we're all pretty close to, uh, being the the opposite of what we think is right. Hey man, I'm down for hunting poachers, dude. Fuck yeah, it'd be the awesome. most dangerous game. Let's go do it. But I also could see if we were from some poor tribe and we couldn't feed our family and some more powerful people that could like butcher our whole village offers us guns 
and money and more food than we've ever had to take the tusk off some stupid animal that destroys our crops anyway. Be like, well, fuck it. I think I'm going to go kill elephants because I can live a better life and be okay instead of starving. Like most of the poachers are people. It's like the same thing with like the pirate, like drug pirates or Somali, all that shit, the kidnappers, all that shit. Like most of those people are so fucking desperate. Like it's, it sucks. It, it's sucky problems. Yeah, I, I, I envision more when I think of poachers. I envision more of uh, like um, evil. Yeah, like white, you know, English and uh, Americans that go over there for the sole purpose of like their their a privileged conquest. Yeah, but the reality is like they're almost all going to be like poor villagers with a a gun, and they're being put on. To work for a day's pay, that's yeah. more than they normally. Make. Yeah, that's harder because it's you know you got to do what you got to do to survive and take care of the people you love. That's I get it. That's not right by any fucking means. Yeah, so you can't you can't blame someone for that. It sucks, and that's most of the people that will get the posters that killed in the act by military or uh, get busted for it. They're never the people that are organizing these conquests or whatever. The stockpiles of ivory they find are. millions and millions of dollars worth and the the militaries will often burn it all there's these photos of half a billion dollars worth of ivory burning that are just fucking wild cool just like the the tiger wine stuff like the people that sell tiger wine wine made in a vat with a tiger skeleton like those are just like poor shop owners like it's it's so shitty the people at the top are not the the people that I don't know. They're 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 funding it, but they're not the ones doing it. Yes. Yeah. Um. So let me ask you this: uh, morality aside, which it's a big like two to three living creatures, not not extinct, just living creatures now that you would combine to create your fantasy animal. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I love hyenas. Hyenas are my spirit mm-hmm. animal. Um, I feel like maybe, maybe some sort of hyena and raccoon for, for the spots on, on, of a hyena on a raccoon, but slightly bigger with big fangs or, um, maybe, uh, hyena and salamander, like something Ooh, really weird. Yeah. Those giant, uh, the, I think they're the red salamanders, the, the ones that live in the Japanese rivers that are like six feet long like something mixed with that would be so cool yeah that sounds Um, dope trying to think you got any off the top of your head uh yeah i was thinking of a um body of a polar bear head of a rhino that sounds brutal that would do some damage huh yeah ride that motherfucker in the battle fuck yeah what about a uh giraffe and a bat <laughs> that would be one gangly looking motherfucker. Now, now here's the question: Is the giraffe body um, equal to the size of the uh, the bat wings, or are the bat wings equal Ooh. to the size of? Because like a little tiny giraffe, that would be cool as fuck. That would be cool as fuck. What if what if instead though? Let's make it very impractical. It's a regular giraffe, 
and the wings are of a normal bat, but it has like <laughs> ten pairs of bat wings going down its neck, <laughs> going down the neck. and they all flap like it's like <laughs> it's more like a rain ritual. It doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> well, if they all finally sync up, they can just get a little floating. <laughs> <you see. laughs> it helps. It helps in the, the neck muscles and raising and lowering the neck. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, uh, the else? other one I, I thought of was um, um, head of a um, clouded leopard mm. and the uh, body of a snake. That sounds terrible. Like a leech, like a, a cat leech. Yeah. Just Ugh. just just creeps up on you, and instead of that viper bite, you get a. <sighs> A whole big ass chunk taken out of you, and they still have the ability to like you know unhinge the jaw. Oh, that would be weird. And then here's the other question: Is the snake body also furry, like a cat? That would be awesome. <laughs> just that a would big, be so cool. A big cat worm. <laughs> just it, it would be it would be such a long cat belly to rub. <laughs> it's it's all belly. Oh shit! That'd be so much fun. What else? Or picture um, the um, the cat head instead. Like think of like a hairless cat, but like the skin of like a salamander, or something like the the the, the body and skin of like a salamander. Dude, I I hate monkeys, bro. I think anything mixed <laughs> with a monkey would be so. What about a monkey and a cat? Now now, um, paint the picture for me. Like a a skin uh, a hairless cat and a monkey, so it'd have like the buff monkey body with like the uh, with all skinless monkey body with a uh, one of those cat heads. I'm pretty sure that's one of the old gods. It's it, dude. It really would be monkeys. That's are like Anubis or some shit. You never trust a monkey. Never trust a monkey. <laughs> They're too much like people, and people can't be trusted. <laughs> exactly, dude. They they will look. Through your your eyes into your soul and then bite your jugular. Fucking cool. Shouts out to Harambe. <laughs> God, now I want to be. Well, a Harambe is an ape. He's not a monkey. But yeah. either way, he's dead. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would love to Frankenstein me some animals. See, like I can talk all this shit about don't go to a zoo, but if I had two animals in front of me and I could start splicing shit together, I'm <laughs> Frankenstein take, pretty let's quick. Let's take this one's legs and this one's <laughs> legs and stick them together. <laughs> I'm just making Silent Hill shit out of them. God's feeling pretty creative today. Yeah. <laughs> today I'm God. I'm, I'm clocking in as God. <laughs> Oh, uh, fucking a. Um, so I I think that's uh I think that's a podcast. I think we can start wrapping up here. Yeah, I think that was a good way to do it. Um, I so any any final words on taxidermy? Cool um, but uncool. Yeah, it, it mostly Whatever. sucks shit. I get yeah. the art form of it, but it mostly sucks shit. Yeah, bones are cool. Dead shit's cool, but dead shit's less cool if you put it on your walls. Maybe. Yeah. Soft moral stances. <laughs> Soft moral stances. My morals are flexible. There are there are bigger problems, but yeah. it's still a shitty thing. What about a kangaroo, kangaroo, and a uh, 
something cool that could go in its pouch. What's another a- animal that could come? Oh, oh like a, a, f- a frog with a long tongue. Like the kangaroo pouch was their mouth, and it could spit the tongue like 20 feet. Out of the pouch? Yeah. That's pretty like wild. Like a big-ass frog tongue. And it could like pull them around like a grappling hook in Halo. Like, <laughs> ooh, ooh, part Komodo dragon with kangaroo legs. Oh, dude, the Komodo dragons are so cool. They're so fucking dope. All the bacteria and their saliva. Yep. <sighs> fucking ah. brutal. Well, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know you had a quote here. Did you want to read this? Oh yeah, I think this was a good way to go out uh so this is just a a final stitch in the knot this is a quote from taxidermist karen neems uh she had a wonderful quote in reflection as to why she found her taxidermy work to be so meaningful and she said quote i am continuously drawn to the broken damaged and often mangled forms of animals whose life has been cut short often in violent ways when I'm able to rescue these lifeless forms and create something new, it feels like a personal triumph. Each creature I touch is a little piece of my soul. You may see something morbid, disgusting, and broken. I see the potential and opportunity that hides beneath the battered bones. Working with blood, flesh, and bone is an intimate and organic process. In the hours I spend with each dead animal, a personal connection develops that borders on love. Every time it works, when something is preserved and made anew, my soul claims a victory. I heal myself with every scrape and stitch. And that is absolutely lovely. Uh, Poetic writing by her. I think it's a beautiful perspective to have. But I also feel it very important to remember that that animal is dead it cannot love you back. And to use its corpse to heal is a little bit selfish. Yeah. But that's all cool. Yeah. Uh, next week, existentialism. Um, yeah, that's going to be fun. Yes, um, very excited. Uh, so thanks again for listening, everybody. Uh, thank you to Approaching Human for the use of his music. You can find his work on SoundCloud at Approaching-Human. Thanks, John. Make sure to check out the show page at Trash Cats Trash Cast on Instagram for news and arts from the show. Also, check out Facebook for the memes. For the memes, if you're super bored, you can check out my trash yard on Instagram at SkyZixSKYZICX. I will hopefully have this stupid piece of shit art up soon. I've been stuck on it for like a week and a half, so hopefully get that soon. Uh, Shouts out to all the taxidermists we have mentioned in this episode, and especially our honorable mentions, the artist... Uh, die seven eyed possibly divide on instagram at di number seven ide uh also check out plastic cats my homie and then our second honorable mention of the episode was 30 seconds of starless on instagram very beautiful stuff please check them out and support support the artist homies uh make sure you turn in next week for our episode on existentialism that's going to be all for us today stay classy eat trashy Go fast, eat trash.